toss the yolk. And the famously candid dope doesn't pull any punches. How do I make natural looking contour? Hire the biggest fool in the village and tell him to make it flat. First overrated, underrated, rough. Terribly overrated over the years. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the first episode of The Yoke with Doke. Tom, it's exciting to get this going. Thanks, Andy. It's nice to be here, and a very clever title on your part. <laughs> there, There's not many things that rhyme with Doke. <laughs> there were, you know, my, my wife kept saying, it's got to be talking with Tom. And I was like, that, that's about the most boring title you could come up with. But it worked out. So um, today we're going to talk about uh, Golf Course Architecture 101. So we've got a ton of questions from uh, listeners, and they range from, you know, the very beginning, you know, what is, what is golf course architecture to, you know, questions about specific features at, you know, different golf courses. So uh, sure. the first question I think where we can start off with is from Tommy J. And it was, it's how would you describe golf course architecture to a fifth grader? Ooh, to a fifth grader. That's about the age where I took up golf. Um, I think the, the idea of golf course architecture is to plan out a golf course over the ground that'll be interesting for people to play. You know, and part of that's finding the right path across the ground so you don't have to keep climbing up hills and going down hills too much. And then part of it's figuring out what sorts of things you have to build to add to the fun and the interest of the golf course. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I think that's a good way to do it. I, I remember my early golf memories. I played tree golf, and I would play with wiffle balls in our front yards or in our neighborhood with a buddy and we'd play to different trees, but we had the street was like a water hazard. So, you know, you'd have to play over it. But it wouldn't have been a good golf course design because there were a lot of forced carries. Yeah. I started thinking about design more on paper. I mean, one of the, one of the very first courses I saw was Harbor Town when it was brand new. And the thing that got me hooked on golf course architecture was this little booklet that Charles Price, the golf writer, had done it was like hole by hole diagrams. It's kind of like you for a yardage book today, except without yardages because it was 1970 and people didn't play by yardage so much. But it had like a diagram of the hole and three really simple sentences about how to play it. Like, you know, this is a short par five. And if you're going for the green in two, you need to drive it left near that bunker. Otherwise, there's going to be a tree in your way for the second shot. You know, and it was something a 10-year-old could read and understand. And golf course architecture really isn't much more complicated than that. I wonder if learning golf course architecture, you see it with like languages now. Kids get taught foreign languages at age like four because they found sure. that it's yeah. easier to oh, learn way. it. <laughs> way. So I wonder if that would be like similar for golf course architecture, like if learning the principles at a really young age would be easier. I think it would help, you know, just in terms of, you know, coming to acceptance on a lot of it, but also, you know, really thinking through the things that you challenge, that challenge you about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
it's uh maybe it's it's uh, the beginning of your golf life you should learn it like right that should be the first thing you learn before you even learn how to play um let's uh so mark l wants to know how do i know i'm standing on a good golf hole in terms of the tee shot approach and green how do you know it's good i think if it excites you it's good i mean you know most architects would give you a lot of different reasons about strategy and you know in, in some ways, you know, good golf design is like watching somebody who's expert play billiards. It's like you have to make one shot, but a really good player is thinking about setting up the next shot at the same time. And, you know, a good golf hole does that too. It, you know, it's not just about hitting a long straight drive. It's about, you know, what's that going to leave you once you do it? And, you know, depending on your game, there might be places you don't want to leave yourself because you're, you know, you're just not a good bunker player and there's a bunker 50 yards short of the green and that's the last place you want to be. So, you know, do something different with your tee shot instead of risking that. Um, but, you know, it is simple enough that the average person, you know, like my wife doesn't play golf, but usually she can pick out a good golf hole. It's, uh, there's just something about it that fits the eye and it looks really engaging you don't even have to be a golfer to know that the proportions are right. As, uh, I was recently at a golf course, and and uh, somebody that didn't know a ton about golf was like, oh, I love the 13th hole there. And, like, sure enough, that hole was, like, it was, like, one of the coolest holes at the golf course, for sure. Like, you know, probably it was probably the hole that sticks with you the most. But yeah. it's like, you know, this is a novice that doesn't know anything, but he picked out that hole. Yep. remember that hole so make that's that's uh there's a lot of truth to that um so kyle nathan asks what are the different styles of golf course architecture um the you know the old books that i've read about golf course architecture separated into three schools there's penal design which is you hit a bad shot you wind up in a bunker or a hazard or something just right off the bat um, strategic design, which is maybe there aren't a lot of hazards, but the hazards are really close to where you really want to go. So you can decide to flirt with them or plays, give them a lot of room and kind of play half away from them. And then Robert Trent Jones started talking about that he was doing something different called the heroic school where, you know, you you give somebody a water hazard to hit over in order to gain an advantage for the next shot. So that's kind of strategic, but more in your face. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and I've always used the example that great golf courses really have a usually have a mix of all three. I mean, you very rarely see, a, I don't think you ever see a course with 18 just purely strategic holes that don't have any you know, left and right bunkering on a hole. Um, you know, uh, I once used the example of Augusta National. Um, you look at 11, 12, 13 in Augusta National, they're pretty famous holes. Um, 11 is really strategic. There's only one thing you don't want to do, hit it in the lake to the left. You've got all the room in the world on the right to avoid the lake to the left. You get to number 12, and that's a penal hole. Yeah. I mean, there is, you know... 
you can aim away from the right-hand pin over to the left-hand pin, but if you do that, you're hitting over a bunker with another nasty bunker behind, so you're avoiding the water. You know, it's, it's like you do have choices, but you still have to hit a really good shot. There's no getting around to having to hit a good shot on that hole. And then 13 is more of a heroic hole. You know, if you're a great player, you're thinking about going for it in two and shaping your shot around the corner of the dog leg so you've got a way to get in there and you shorten the approach where it's possible. You know, and the average player can't think that way, but it's a good three-shot hole for them. So, you know, there is a really good example. Augusta is considered, like, one of the great strategic courses, but not every hole on it is a purely strategic hole. Yeah, there's still, like, some penal aspects of it. I, I was writing um, an article on a, a short par three the other day, and I was thinking about it. I was like, well, like, all short par threes are kind of penal holes for the most part. Nearly all. Yeah, I mean, you know, sometimes I take flack from people that, um, you know, I've, I've heard several people say they don't like my par threes as much as some of my other holes. And it's, I think it's because I don't really like building penal holes. So, I don't, you know, I don't like surrounding greens with bunkers. I'll, I'll usually give you a place to miss. And for most people, a good par three is a penal hole that it's just guarded everywhere because they figure you've got a short iron in your hands and it's on a tee, so you ought to be, this is the time I ought to be able to make you hit a good shot. I, I feel like the, those par threes are great, but something that gets messed up there is with the, like the ladies and senior tees because they have to have this forced carry, and a lot of times they don't, they don't move the tees up far enough right. to give them a chance because they're hitting like a – I watched my mom. She'll hit like – have to hit like a five wood right into like this little green with a with bunkers everywhere exactly i mean you you know you don't building a green that requires a carry into it is really hard for people who hit the ball on a low trajectory and a lot of architects don't even think about people that hit it on a low trajectory until they get in their senior years and suddenly wish they had thought about that more yeah it's uh it, it seems like a it's that's a, the playing the game as a, as a lady when I watch like my mother or like the rare time that my wife goes out is it, it, it's just such a different game. It's so much harder uh, for them. But um, here's, here's a good question. Uh, ben Vanna wants to know how important are drawing skills in becoming a golf course architect? If drawing skills were really important, I would have never been able to get a job. I mean, you know, I can draw like a plan view of a golf hole, okay. But, you know, if you wanted me to do a rendering of what it was going to look like, I'd be hopeless at that. I took, I had to take one drawing course in college for my landscape architecture degree, and that, I'm sure that was the lowest grade I got in, in three years of landscape architecture. Um, and I used to be very defensive about it, but, but I've, you know, I've learned over the years that different, you know, everybody has a different way of communicating. And, but the thing that I've learned the most is, you know, to me, golf course architecture is, it's more sculpture than drawing. I mean, you're working in three dimensions and the third dimension really matters, you know, whether the, whether the, the green is pitching away from the line of play a little bit or whether there's a crown there has a huge effect on things. And you, you have to be able to visualize that. So I don't think... You know, I've never thought that the guys that just strictly draw plans and then hand that to somebody to try to build 
you know, Michelangelo wouldn't do a sculpture by starting in 2D and drawing a plan of it and then going to 3D. He just went straight to 3D when it was time to do sculpture. And, it, you know, that's kind of how we build golf courses. Plus, I can't draw. <laughs> Whenever I see one of those contests for, like, hey, draw, draw a golf hole and be into or enter the contest, I'm a horrendous drawer. Like, I can't – my handwriting's horrible. My drawing skills are terrible, and I always – I'm always like, well, that's just, I'm not going to even take the time because I don't want my thoughts to even be what's on paper because it's not representative of what I'm thinking about at all. Like, I'm not, that's how bad I am at drawing. But it, it, I imagine a lot of stuff happens in the ground too. Like, there, you have to make some minor tweaks. Like, you can't just go off of a drawing and get the result. You know, that's very rare. I don't think, yeah, at the end of the day, I don't think anybody is that good at drawing to get exactly what they want just from a drawing. I mean, every great golf course I've ever seen was built by people out in the, out in the ground who understood golf and, you know, were really paying attention to all those details when they were building it. Um, so I'm not saying it can't be done. I just don't know of a place where it has been done. Yeah, with technology, who knows? Eventually, it might get to somewhere with that. Um, well, the day you know, the day that the day that everybody is able to like do a golf course entirely in three D virtual reality, so they can just translate it out to the ground, will also be the day you don't need to go out on the ground anymore because you could just stay in your house and do it on the virtual reality. So, I'm hoping that's still a long way off. Have you have you ever seen those like the I I get I, I have a bunch of readers that play this like video game that's like a golf course design you can design the golf course it's called like the golf club or something have you ever tried doing that thing I I tried a little with the really early ones like 15 20 years ago no I haven't I haven't touched any of the latest stuff like I said I'm scared of it I mean at some point it's not just going to put golf course architects out of business if they're really good at it, it'll put golf out of business, and that would be a sad day for me. Yeah, and like the, with the screen golf popularity in Southeast Asia, it, it, I don't know, screen golf's going to come to America eventually, and it, it, it might take some of the popularity. It might grow the game, though, too. That's true. It might. There's a, there's a give and take. Um, here's a good question. So Mr. P asks, golf is full of counterintuitions. So, you know hit down to make the ball go up for one. If your ball's going right, swing right to make it go left. Is there anything in architecture that you found is counterintuitive? Ooh, that's not a 101 question. <laughs> you should save that for the 301 class. <laughs> I know. Um, I, it, was, it was such a good question. <laughs> I, I think there are a bunch of things that are counterintuitive about good golf course architecture, and I'm trying to think where to start with that um, well I guess the first counterintuitive thing to me is that what people you know one of the words I don't like to use in golf course architecture is fair and the reason is fair changes for every single player you know, you and I don't play the same game. You hit it 40 yards farther than me 
on a bad day. Um, so, you know, you might think that a hole is fair because you're hitting a seven iron into a green that takes you a good shot to hit a seven iron and hold it. And so you would call that hole fair. And then I would be looking at that green with a four or five iron in my hands and not quite the same ability as you. And I would pronounce it unfair because even if I carry the bunker in front, I'm going to have a hard time holding the green. So, you know, and that, that, that just keeps sliding down the scale for every different golfer. Every different golfer has different abilities. So you can't really say that something's fair for everyone. Mm-hmm. And, and the, but the tricky part is, you know, a lot of architects, especially the ones who are good players, you know, they think of everything in terms of fair and trying to make it work out well for them. And they don't realize that they're making, that makes everything work out just wrong for somebody who's, 25 yards shorter than them or 25 yards longer than them. So I, I think one of the toughest things is, is thinking for me, thinking backwards. I always try and think about like my dad or my mom and how they play. And then, you know, different, you have to think about every type of player when you're designing a course. You should think about every type of player when you're designing a course. It's hard to do. I mean, it's, you know, when, you, when you've got a real wrinkly piece of land, um, you know, f- if you're hitting over a valley, um, trying to find tees for a- every level of player that, the, you know, they can get to the top on the other side is tough to do. You kind of like, you know, when you're laying out a course, you know, if you want, if you want to require a 220-yard tee shot, a pretty good tee shot to get over that valley, you know, you'll play around with the angle of the hole. You know, the valley might be a hundred yards across on a straight line, but if you turn the hole on a diagonal, you can make it so it's 200 or 220 or whatever you want. The problem is then when you try to make it work for a 150 yard carry, you know, you can, you can move the tee up the one side. So you're hitting more straight across but then you, you wind up getting to the point where you're just hitting straight across the fairway and out the other side. Mm-hmm. You know, so the, the angle that you take for whether you're planning the golf course from the back tee first or the middle tee first, you know, kind of makes it harder to, to put the other tees in the right place. And 95% of golf courses are designed from the back tees first. Mm-hmm. So the forward tees are the ones where the problems show up. I imagine that tee box placement is like that's something I never think about with, when it comes to architecture is that something that like a lot of like a lot of thought goes into from your end actually I think probably not enough thought goes into tee box placement for the middle and forward tees you know a lot of people just put it a certain percentage of distance up or a certain number of yards up from the from the back tees and call it good um, but you know, when you're dealing with a piece of land that has undulation to it, there's a lot more to it than that. And, you know, I think everybody thinks, you know, most architects, when they get out on site, they're thinking more about their own game than about everyone else. Mm-hmm. You know, you try to think about everyone else, but but you visualize the shots that you can hit. So it's 
it's pretty hard to make yourself back off and think, you know, I used to, th I used to think about my mom a lot and knowing that she could, you know, I mean, I only saw her play later in life and she barely got the ball airborne a lot of the time, but that's sort of easy to visualize. You yeah. know, I can go back to that pretty easily and think now there's no way my mom could get around this. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's much harder to think about the, the senior player who's still good but hits the ball low and only carries it 130 or 40 yards and what works for them. Mm -hmm. um, Car for the Course wants to know, what is the most difficult obstacle when designing a course? A, poor soil. B, bland topography. C, overbearing owner. Or D, other. Ooh. Uh, repeat the question again because Di I don't most difficult obstacle when designing a course. A um, okay, I, I remember the three options. Um, you know, I wrote right in the front of my little red book. Uh, an old guy that used to work in the construction business named David Postlewage, who was one of my first bosses when I worked for the Dyes, said that, you know, everything comes back to the land, the owner, and the money. <laughs> and you really, you know, to do something really good, you've got to get all three of them right. So the soils are the land. Yeah. And, and the topography. And the topography. And of the two, you know, you can you can fix those if you spend enough money uh, but I, you know i think the soils are the harder thing to fix i mean i'm not a big a lot of these new courses built out west and overseas they'll like truck in a foot of sand to sand cap all the fairways 50 acres of grass you know it's hard to make the numbers work you know it's hard to build a course that is profitable when you spend that much you know, trying to create perfect conditions on a harsh site. Um, so I think that would be my first choice. Overbearing owner, you know, I try to use my sixth sense so I don't wind up working for those guys and just declining a job like that. But, you know, you, you do, you have to have a, you have to have a good relationship with the client for it to work. Mm -hmm. And I get, so I guess the, the answer to that problem is you just have to know, the ones to walk away from that you don't think you could work with. And I, I've certainly walked away from a few potential jobs because I just didn't think the client and I would be on the same page. Yeah, it's the, uh, I, I did a, a bunker, I built a bunker this summer and you quickly r realize when you hit clay and it's really hard to dig in clay. <laughs> it's like, I was thinking about it. It's like when it was like sandy and nice loose soil, it was easy. And you hit clay, it's like, oh, this is really hard to work with. No doubt. I mean, and w you know, honestly, one of the keys to my success in the golf business is that I've done so many projects on sand because mm -hmm. it is so much easier. You know, I've the best analogy that I could ever come up with for somebody is, you know, if you were like in the printing business, when desktop publishing came along, it was a whole different world. Because you could actually like see on a computer screen exactly what was going to be on the page. Before that, you had to make all these allowances for, you know, how the spacing was going to work out, and 
how much room to leave at the top and bottom. And you never really saw the finished page until somebody put it in a typeset or put it together. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, in golf course architecture, when you're building in clay, you know, once you've kind of shaped the green the way you want, there's all these other steps that still have to happen. You know, you have to put trench in, drainage underneath, and then put a gravel layer in, and then put a sand layer in. And presumably all those layers are, are exactly right and flowing together, so what you built on the bottom winds up on the top. But it's really hard to do. There's a lot more steps and places where things can go wrong. It's harder to visualize the first step and get it right, you know, and if you, if you, if you do something on the ground floor of that and then you get up to the top and you're like, ooh, that doesn't look too good, you're kind of stuck because you're not supposed to, like, change the profile of the green in order to make something work better. Um, you know, in sand, it's only one layer. Yeah. You shape and you're done. You dig a bunker and you stand it and try to visualize the shot that you're going to play. And if you think, now I want it a little deeper, you go back and dig out a few more scoops and lower it another six inches. Whereas in clay, you know, you've got to stand in that bunker and visualize, okay, there's going to be a liner in this thing, and then there's going to be sand on top of that, and there's going to be topsoil on the face of the bunker. And you really don't have as clear a feel for the shot that you're going to have to hit out of it when it all gets put back together. Besides, like, the layers... Do you think it settles any differently, like over time, with all like the gravel and everything, or is it? Is you it know, really? I've I've heard people talk about green settling when we when we do consulting work. They say, "Oh, the green's settled," and usually I just think, "Well, no, the green's faster, and it's just you know the ball's getting away from you more because the green is faster, and you think something else must have happened here." But it's possible if you're building out of, if you build out of like you know if you put five or six feet of fill to build a green Mm -hmm. and you don't compact it and run over with the equipment a lot at the start and it's clay and not sand sand gets pretty compacted pretty fast as much as it's going to it's possible some kinds of soil will settle a little bit Mm -hmm. you know i've never seen it much on my courses but we don't build a lot of things out of fill you know i try not to put fill at a green site so I, I personally have almost never seen it on my own courses. I can think of exactly one hole where I think something settled a little bit, but maybe it's more common than I think. Yeah, I um, it might be just an old wives' tale. Um, can Hideki Win wants to know if you pay attention to par when you're designing a golf course? I'd like to say no, that I don't pay attention to par. The it'd be more fair to say. I try not to let par drive all my decisions. Like I know some architects that if they've built more that if they've built two par fours in a row, they're uncomfortable with doing a third. <laughs> they think they think it must be time for a par three or a par five. Um, and I have to, you know, I just, you know, when I traveled around when I was in college and saw all these great courses, you know. I've seen so many of those kind of rules be broken and, you know, still thought the golf course was great that I kind of threw a lot of that out. Um, you know, so I'm trying to think of a good example. There's there's a course in England called Saunton that's um, a very good course out in the west of England, a Lynx course. And I think they changed what I think they changed the second hole to a par five, but Saunton 
the first 14 holes were like it had four par fours and then a par three and then seven more par fours and then a par three and it had like two par fives at the end to be to wind up at par 71 or something but it was like it was kind of an interesting experience playing it for the first time it's like wow is there ever going to be a par five or is there it seems like we've gone a long way without a par three but I don't have a problem with that if that's, you know, if that's what you feel like makes for the best golf courses. Um, you know, at the end of the day, though, you know, when I get a routing plan kind of three quarters done, yes, I look. And if it's par 74 or it's par 69, you know, realistically, I've got to think, is the client going to be okay with this? Or, you know, what are my options to make it not that way? But I try to follow my eye first and then think, okay, is this too weird? Mm -hmm. And absolutely the best example of that, when we were out in Pacific Dunes, um, I'd been struggling around trying to put the pieces together. And I had most of the holes figured out, but there were a couple places. My last version changed a couple of holes, but it also changed the sequence pretty completely. Um, you know, one version you would have been going, you would have played not all the coastal holes in order, but pretty close to that mm -hmm. instead of getting to them and away from them. So when we, we walked through the routing, the final routing one morning, um, and we were going to walk through the, the previous routing afterwards, but everybody loved the, the routing that we had so much it's like we're done that's the routing and we went in and had lunch and it's kind of everybody in a good mood and I was sitting across from Mike Kaiser and I started thinking about the scorecard for it because I'd only you know figured out this new sequence like the night before and I hadn't done a scorecard or anything so I just started jotting it down on a napkin because I realized it was going to be pretty weird and you know there are Seven par fours on the front nine. The third hole's a par five. Mm -hmm. Fifth hole's a par three. All the other holes are par fours. And on the back nine, you start with two par threes in a row, and then a par five, and then 14's a par three, 15's a par five, 17's a par three, and 18's a par five. So there's four par threes on the back nine, and three par fives, and only two par fours. And I thought, damn. I've never seen a great course that got away with that. So I slid that napkin over to Mr. Kaiser and said, are you comfortable with this? And he said, if you'd have shown me that before, before we went out for that walk, I'd have said no. <laughs> but we all walked it and we all thought it was great. So I'm comfortable with it. And that's, you know, a lot of people make up their minds. You've heard the saying, don't judge a book by the cover. A lot of people make a lot of decisions about golf courses by looking at the scorecard. And I just think that's the dumbest thing you can do. You know, you just got to go out and look at what, what's out there on the ground and how the golf course takes you around the ground. And that's the most important thing. If it doesn't fit precisely into the box of par 36 on each side, who cares as long as it's good? Mm-hmm. I feel like if you 
once there is a great course that has a setup like that, it's more likely to have more obscure, you know, formations of scorecards also. You know, it usually takes one thought leader to, you know, one, you know, example to lead the way to more. No doubt. No doubt. I mean, golf is a game of follow the leader. Like in, you know, in Asia, I did a course in China. Sadly, it never opened because they changed their minds on allowing golf in China. But, um, you know, in Japan, in China, in Korea, par 72 is almost like a religion. It's like they are so uncomfortable with the idea that you could do anything else that, you know, it's, it's maybe one of the reasons they don't call me more about going over there because I, you know, that's so far from my mind when I'm trying to design something. But you can just see the level of discomfort with a client like, ooh, I don't know, you know, that's going to be really hard to sell. And, you know, it's strange to me because they don't, you know, I guess they feel that way because they don't know that much else about golf. So they do know this one thing, that it's supposed to be par 72. That's what quality is. Um, you know, the more you know, the less important that gets to be. It also seems like there's, like, if you know just enough, you're almost the most dangerous person. Like, oh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> seems like there's some <laughs> superintendents that think that about me, that I know just enough about turf to be a real, tr be a real problem. <laughs> um, so it, it, this kind of leads right into, we got a lot of questions about routing and, and talking about this. It, it is a natural transition. Uh, Blair Bromley asks, when you first visit a site for a potential project, what's the first thing that comes into your mind? Hmm. I just did that uh, twice in the last five days. I was in Spain looking at a couple potential projects. And, and I had, usually I try to have a map beforehand because when you go out on a site for the first time, if I take somebody with me who's not used to doing it, you know, without golf holes on the land, it seems so much more vast. And it really is. You know, a golf course takes up at a minimum 150 acres, and sometimes we're looking at hundreds of acres of ground trying to figure out where the holes go. And, you know, the sense of scale, you know, even a simple par four hole is a quarter mile long. And when you get out there and there's no fairway and no scale, it looks a quarter mile long. It looks like a long way out there. Um, and your eye tricks you. It's, I, you know, I've, the, the number one question I'm asked when I'm walking a golf course with somebody in the dirt is, is this a par five? Because they all look like par fives. You know, a 350-yard hole looks like a par five to, to the average person until you get a flag out there or something for scale that they can see how the scale of a golf hole fits it. Um, you know, I'm different. When I go out on a piece of land for the first time, I'm, like, looking for the problems. Like, where's the corner that if I get into that corner, I can't get out? You know, because ultimately the client, you know, the client wants to know if this is potentially a great course. And I want to know, is this a job I want to take? And so it's kind of like, okay, is there something here that's going to prevent this from getting to where everybody wants it to be? Um, the other thing that you look for 
because you know I rely on topo maps quite a bit to work with the routing. But there are things that don't show up well on the map, you know, like trees and vegetation. Like if there's a, you know, trees will be marked on the map, but they, you know, they all look alike on the map. And obviously some are huge, beautiful oak trees and some are little scrubby things. So, you know, picking out the ones that are great looking things that you wouldn't want to cut down and trying to make those features instead of getting right in the way of something is really important. So you start trying to note where those things are. And then the other thing that doesn't show up on a map is the views. Like, you know, if you've, if you've got a course that's next to the water, that's not hard to visualize on the map. You know, you're, you're just looking out to the water. But if you've got, like, both pluses and minuses, if you've got a beautiful church steeple and you'd like to have a whole play toward that, that may not be on the map, and you have to have a sense of where it where it is. And uh, by the same token, if you got a power line going past, you know you don't want to be playing right at one of those towers. I mean, it's you know a lot of properties have power lines somewhere around them, and it doesn't really bother the the golfer's experience very much as long as you're not playing right at one of those towers. Then they can't help but notice it. Or playing from under one. Or playing from <laughs> under one. <laughs> um, so you, you mentioned, you know, uh, owners and, you know, whether via owner or developer always wants to know if it's a truly a great course. Do you, do you have a sense, like with some of your courses, have you known from like the second you got out there, it was going to be a great golf course? Yes. I've been lucky. I've worked with, <laughs> I've worked with, um, a bunch of sites that, could and should be great courses from the day I first laid eyes on them. Pacific Dunes, obviously. Even though some of it was covered by gorse. I mean, you, Pacific Dunes, you knew right away there were going to be a bunch of great holes, but there were pieces of it you couldn't really visualize because the gorse was so thick. Mm -hmm. um, you know, but, you know, you get to the level, like Terra Edi in New Zealand, which turned out great, you know, from day one or day two, our client was asking us, do you think this could be one of the top 50 courses in the world? And we're standing in the middle of a pine forest that somebody planted over the top of these dunes, and you can't see 100 yards. So all I've got is a map, and I know there's a great ocean view out there. I'm like, just biting my lip, because, you know, I don't think he wanted to try to do the golf course unless I thought it could be that good. And that's a huge leap of faith, especially on a site where you're not, you know, I said vegetation is an important feature of the golf course, and we didn't have any to work with. I mean, none of those pine trees were going to stay in the finished product. You know, they're all planted in rows, so even the places you didn't want a golf hole, they looked really artificial and awkward. So we we're going to replace everything with natural vegetation. So saying at the beginning, yeah, I think that could be the top 50 in the world is kind of a crazy goal. But... You know, what I said to him was, you know, all I know is every time I get an oceanfront site, everybody loves it, and you got that big oceanfront right there, so I think you got a shot. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, that, from everything I've heard, that one is, is a special place. Um, putting together a golf course is kind of like a puzzle, in, in, from what I gather. Very much. Um, 
So where do you draw the line? And this is from Philip Johnson. Where do you draw the line between having the best hole on the property and having the better overall routing? You know, you've got to get, you've got to get a little feel for the client about what they're after. You know, there, there may be some kinds of clients, not the typical ones that I go to, that, you know, all they want is the one great hole that's a hook for the place. Mm -hmm. They're not really thinking they're going to build a great golf course. But, you know, like there's a lot of courses in Hawaii that have the one great par three over the ocean, and then everything else is inland away from the ocean. They put houses along the ocean. Um, but if your goal is to, you know, if the client's goal is to build a great golf course, you have to be willing to throw out a really good hole that just doesn't fit or, you know, I can build this great hole, but I know if I do the hole after it's going to stink because you're not, you know, you can get away with the hole after it being kind of blah because everybody's still coasting off the high of just having played a really great hole. But if the next hole stinks, that kind of root, you know, that kind of just drives a stake through the last hole being so good. So there's a, there's a balance there. And, you know, I usually find a couple holes pretty quickly in the process that are really hard to give up on. Yeah. But sometimes taking that one piece out is what you have to do. And it's hard, it's hard to make yourself do it. But, you know, at the end of the day, you're, you're trying to find the best 18-piece puzzle, not just the one cool-looking piece. Yeah, because then you end up in a chase to try and figure out how to get in and out of that one spot well. I'm, if you have one that you just feel like you can't get rid of, it probably is going to be, at the end of it, a pain to get to. Right. I mean, one of the, you know, I mean, there's so many things about routing that, you know, even if they like give you a place for the clubhouse to be at the beginning and you, you know, now you're, I mean, if you do that, you're telling me, okay, you got to build four holes around this point right here. So, you know, I want to start trying to find holes first and then see where there's a bunch of holes that come together mm -hmm. and see if we can make the clubhouse work there. But, you know, sometimes it's a building that you're going to renovate. Sometimes it's just, you know, on a, on a lot of projects, it's like, you know, there's one place you're going to drive into the property and they don't want to build two extra miles of road to get over to the other side to put a clubhouse over there. So, you know, the first good spot to build a clubhouse is going to be the spot and you accept that. But the fewer musts that you start with, the better, you know, the more options you have for the routing. Same with it has to return at the ninth hole. You know, that crosses out a ton of options. Just, you know, you know th that means you can't ever get more than five holes away from where the clubhouse is. That, that's something that boggles my mind is, like, why can't it stop after six holes? <laughs> like, like, why can't it, if it comes And some court, lo lots of good courses do. You know, there's certain places where, yeah, we want a nine-hole option. Yeah. And we think we're going to do a lot of business that way. But... You know, one of the clients that said that to me that really wanted the ninth hole to come back to the clubhouse was Julian Robertson and Cape Kidnappers. And I thought, nobody's coming all this way. <laughs> and they're going to stop at nine. <laughs> or, 
or would be angry if they had to play an extra hole before they got back to the clubhouse to leave after 10. Um, and yet it was a really important thing to him, partly because he's a member of Shinnecock Hills, one of the great courses of the world, which conveniently comes back at the ninth hole. So we had to modify that routing a little bit to get Julian comfortable with it and get the club at, you know, get the clubhouse, move the clubhouse slightly to get it so it worked with two loops and nine. Um, Trevor Dormer asks, how have you honed your approach to routing over the years? Trevor's not a beginner. No, Trevor's not a beginner. <laughs> I know I know his name. Um, I'm not sure my approach is any different. It's just that you get better at it the more you practice. I mean, you talked about routing being a puzzle, and it's just like, it's just like doing the Sunday New York Times crossword puzzle. I mean, the first time that you try to do that, it just looks like a hopeless exercise that you're going to make the, like, that you're going to get all those words and fit together and and finish the whole thing. It just seems impossible. If you do it every week, you start seeing some conventions, and you start seeing, oh yeah, they have to use, there's a few kind of key words that sometimes they need to use in order to, you know, when you've got an odd combination of letters, there's only a certain number of words that are gonna fit that. So there's, there's little tricks that you learn as you go. And I, I'm not sure I can describe exactly what all those tricks are, but, you know, when I let my associates work on a routing with me, sometimes they'll be like, They'll find a really good hole over here, and I'm, I'm just, like, shutting them down right away. Like, you're never getting back from that one. You know, you, it's kind of like you're going down a dead end, and you're either going to have a bad hole coming back or or it just you get yourself into a corner you, can't, you physically can't get out of. There's no room for another fairway to come back. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if a property is a certain width there's room for four holes playing parallel. And those holes can get tighter and tighter together, but at some point it gets a little too tight for four holes. And the next, the next option is only two because you can't play out and play back and play out and never get back to the clubhouse. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, you just learn to see those kinds of things on the map more quickly as you've done it more. Uh, you're still looking for the same things. You're looking for the features that make the land special and how can I use that as part of a golf hole. You know, the hardest part is when there's something besides golf going on. You know, I went to landscape architecture school because you couldn't go to golf course architecture school. And I did, you know, when we started, I didn't think I was going to plan resorts or, you know, national parks or all the other things that landscape architects do. Um, but it's helped me a lot in dealing with landscape architects who do the land plans for the bigger project around my golf course. And the, and the hardest part is they're looking for all those same features that I like, they like too. They want to make the entrance road go by this point so you can see that tree with the ocean in the background. And there's a, it's a little bit of a wrestling match over who gets to use 
which cool things. Mm -hmm. um, and so the client's priorities really matter. You know, if the client is more interested in the housing or the hotel than the golf, I don't win those arguments as much, and it's harder to build a great golf course. Um, so as, like, for a beginner, if they wanted to start to really, what should they pay attention to about routing? Like, what are maybe, say, a couple things that they should pay attention to when they play golf at a golf course? That's a hard question because I don't think I think it's very difficult when you're out playing golf to visualize the land without a golf course. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, it's like, you know, when you see the answer to the crossword the next day, it's hard to feel stuck. <laughs> you know, you could always go look at the answer. Um, so you don't see the options that we're passing up. You know, it's really, I mean, a lot of times people will, um, people will make a suggestion to me of, I could have changed the fifth hole and moved the green over to the right. And they don't understand that anytime you make a move like that, there's, a, there's another move that has, you know, that means the 6T has to be in a different place too. And that's the part that probably isn't gonna work so well, that's why I didn't do it the way they suggested. Um, but to see that stuff when you've never tried to visualize the property as a whole is really hard to do. So, so I, I guess for me, you know, if, if, you're, if you're really interested in routing, the first things to focus on are just when you play a golf course that you like, see see how many of the the standard rules of how you should do things that it breaks you know try to notice those things because the more you look around the more you find that oh these great courses break those rules pretty often mm -hmm. and you know the fewer preconceptions you have about how you know going into how you should do it the better you know the more open-minded you can be about well, I could go any direction here. Mm -hmm. um, the more interesting you can leave it for yourself. Um, Peter Coffey wants to know, what's the toughest type of hole for you to design? Is it a par three, a short par four, long par four, par five, et cetera? I got the par fours down. I think those are nearly always the, the holes on my courses that people like the most. Um, I mentioned earlier par threes. Some people say, oh, he doesn't design great par threes. He's too, he's trying to be too strategic. And we, you know, we want the par three to be just a beautiful picture postcard hole surrounded by trouble. I've done that occasionally, but, but I don't like to. Like, I mean, one of the hardest par threes in the world, in my opinion, certainly the hardest one I've ever built is this little tiny hole at Barnboogle Dunes. It's like 120 yards max. It can play into a fierce wind. It does a lot of the time. So it's not, don't visualize that you're always going to be hitting a wedge to it. Um, it's just got a tiny green, and it's slightly crowned, and there's, there's death bunkers to the left of it and in front of it, just like, you know, 
I think we built them eight feet deep, but with the wind blowing the sand out of the bunkers, they've gotten even deeper. And over the back of the tiny green, it just goes down a hill in the back into rough. But there is a bailout short and right of the green. You know, there's bunkers on the surrounding the bailout area, but there's a place that if you if you're not sure you can hit the green, there's a there's a slightly bigger area. You know, you actually aim just for the right edge of the green or just off the right of the green. And if you wind up short, it's not easy to get up and down for three, but at least you'll finish the hole. I mean, if you pull it in the left bunker, you might pick up. Um, you know, that's my idea of a great hole where, okay, there is a little bailout. And if I was playing a match with you and you hit it in the left bunker, I don't have to hit it on the green. Yeah. I can bail and then, you know, I might still mess up. I bail and then you hit a good bunker shot and oops, I wasn't so smart after all. But you can have the advantage by bailing. Like, that's right. Because I'm in a bad spot and now all of a sudden you've got like a half shot advantage. And that hole is, I mean, that hole is so severe around the green that I see great players bailing 120 yard par three with, with really good players laying up deliberately because they don't want to take the chance of making a six going in the bunker. So something I've noticed playing a lot of your designs and is that I, when I have a wedge in my hand, which it, the game of golf has divulged into a driver wedge for like the you know, yes. very good players. When I have a wedge in my hand, I am absolutely terrified. And I don't know if if you're if it's just in my head, but like the the way that you've built you know greens and ha and bunkers like like my head and like I'm all of a sudden thinking about the exact numbers I have to hit shots and how they're gonna land and react and it and it's different than almost you know any other architect is that on purpose? That's on purpose. Yeah, I'm smiling to hear it because because we really do think about that a lot. You know, I talked about. You know, going back to when we were talking about low trajectory players earlier, there's things that you can do that don't bother those guys so much that really bother a good player. Because when you're, you know, if there is a if there is a crown or a bump in a green, like Streamsong has a lot of them, um, and you're hitting a forward into the hole and landing 30 yards short of the green and it running up, that bump doesn't make any difference for a player like that. The ball will just roll over the bump if it has enough momentum to roll over the bump. And it better roll over softly and go to the other side. You know, a good player with a wedge in his hand, he's deathly afraid of hitting the backside of the bump and have the ball go skidding over the green. And honestly, you know, that's one of the few weapons you have to really frighten a really good player anymore. You know, when I worked for Mr. Dye, he said, all the par fours, or driver, eight iron driver wedge for good players now. And, you know, the great players, if you look at the tour stats on average, they hit the ball within 15 feet of the hole when they've got a short iron in their hands. And, you know, back then the guidance for putting the hole was that you wouldn't cut the cup less than five paces from the edge of the green. So that basically means you can't do anything within the circle that the good player is going to hit the ball. The only thing you can do in that circle is have some contour and some contour that makes them think twice about where do I want, where do I really want this ball to land? Um, you know, we play with that a lot to try to make it 
challenging and a little frightening because the other thing the other thing Mr. Dye was absolutely adamant about is you know with a great player you have to try to get inside their heads they're too good to make normal mistakes on a golf course that other people make so you have to do things that make them uncomfortable at some level you know he did a lot with water he did it sometimes with really really deep bunkers but you know he also did it with a lot of visual things like having the green sit up and you know, it's where there's trouble falling off the back of the green and you can't really feel where the back of the green is. Mm -hmm. I, I've used that a lot in my own work. Y you know, and then the other thing that I've used, and kind of for different reasons than Mr. Die, you know, going back to talking about Barnboogler, that bailout that I'm leaving, leaving a player. You know, a lot of very good players will play very conservative golf when they see something difficult up ahead. And, you know, you don't use that against them necessarily, but, you know, if, if I build a golf course where you can just hit it straight at the flag 18 times, somebody having a good day is going to hit it close to the flag an awful lot. And more power to them. But if I can get them a little scared to hit it right at the flag, because the green has tilt in it and they don't want to be past the hole or because there's some contour that they don't want to hit or because there's a bailout and it would be easier to just take the bailout mm -hmm. you know those are the only things that keep people from shooting 64 all the time the great players if somebody does i don't have a problem with it but i don't want it to be easy for them yeah, I, I'd, I'd agree with that. It's when you when you see these guys on tour get it going, it's, I mean. Oh, yeah, somebody told me, you know, Gary Woodland went to Dismal River, like, the week before the, the Open at Chambers Bay because he wanted to play on fescue. And one of the three days he was there, he shot 59 on my course. And I'm like, okay, he's a great player. Yeah. All right, you know. 11 under par, more power to him. That will do it for part one of Golf Course Architecture 101. Part two will be posted next week. If you're new to the podcast, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or your podcast provider of your choice. Mm -hmm.